Welcome to the beautiful historical marionette theater. Tonight, we're going to be discussing a late 50s court drama. So please take your seats. Matinee Minutia is about to begin. Alrighty, so right here at the top of the tower, we have our senior showgirl, our snack counter girl, Gertie. Uh, hey, hey, how you guys doing? Hey, you know this this movie we're doing tonight, Anatomy of a Murder. Like, wow! Listen, Lee Remick is so hip and chic in this movie. That's me. That's me. I I was Lee Remick. I mean, when I was young. I mean, I I mean, it's like I'm seeing myself on screen. Anyways, I'm done. Is it true this was your mama's favorite book as a girl? Well, I mean, that's what she said. She read it. You know, it was real dog-eared paperback copy, I remember. So she must have read it a lot. Hmm. Well, it is uh, time for study hall there, ma'am. Will you get your cute little tootsies down those stairs first and we can introduce this? Um, my cute little Lee Remick tush. <laughs> okay, be back in a minute. <laughs> Wow. She's excited about tonight, don't you think? I think so. Well, let's let her do her job then, shall we? Small town lawyer Paul Beegler is an attorney who's about to take a case defending an army lieutenant for murder. And not just any murder but the murder of the man who assaulted his wife, Laura. Laura is a bored housewife whose lieutenant husband is always away on duty. And she's hard-pressed to meet society's expectations, you might say. Was she being faithful or was she caught in the act? It's time for Anatomy of a Murder with Jimmy Stewart and Lee Remick. Hit it, boys! What do you get when you take a dash of the silver screen? A pinch of golden oldies? And a smidgen of screaming? It's time for Matinee Minutia with your hosts, DJ and Tommy. Well, Haiti Ho here from the balcony, folks. It's uh, a brisk January evening out here in the Spuds Flats. And, uh, well, we practically had to get out the sleigh to get through the powder tonight. We've uh, yeah. got, uh, oh, maybe about half a foot in the forecast. So, well, you know, it's winter. It's New York. What are you going to do? I'm wondering if we're going to be able to leave at the end of the night. Ooh. We may have to, we may have to just, uh, you know, put our coats over us and sleep in these just horrible chairs. <laughs> well, I have it on good authority that, uh, you know, the uh, the uh, prop master kept a few things in the wardrobe there. So we should be able to find something to keep warm. But uh, I, I, I also heard it. That uh, Gertie keeps a little something to keep her warm under the counter there. 
Oh, and I don't think it's a blanket. Oh, yeah. The other character I'm surprised you didn't mention that she loves is the Arthur O'Connell character who, uh, you know, I mean, well, he just likes a drink or two is what he does. Oh, sure does. Makes life interesting for our lead character there. Let me say hi to the chat room before we start, because mm-hmm. uh, our crews are just chatting. Uh, I'll swap your New York winter for my Australian summer. Uh, I believe that. I totally believe that. But we've got uh, in the chat room, uh, when we do these live, folks, uh, you can you can be here live too in our little uh, our little Discord chat room. And with us tonight, we got our Aunt Tudor. We got your hubby, Billy Starsage. We've got R.T. Cruiser all the way from Australia. And we have the Shy Yeti. Uh, and we have Tommy Hash Browns. Uh, welcome, everybody. Thanks for being here. Oh, and uh, and uh, you are so welcome. Thanks for being in the audience tonight. So, Toppy, uh, the the film that we're going to discuss tonight, it was a best-selling book, I hear. And um, a little bit of a background here. Um, so it's from 1959. It's a courtroom drama uh, and uh, produced, directed by Otto Preminger. Um, by the way, did you ever figure out if it's Preminger or Preminger? Preminger? Or Preminger. I swear everyone says Preminger. So tonight, folks, that's what I'm going with. Uh, and the screen by play is by Wendell Mays, and it's based on a best-selling 1958 novel of the same name that was written by a real court justice, uh, Michigan Supreme Court Justice John D. Volker, and he wrote it under the pen name of Robert Traver. So let's hear the trailer. A man named Barney Quill raped Mrs. Mannion. Her husband plugs Mr. Quill about five times, which causes Mr. Quill to promptly die. No lawyer can handle your case. You mean getting off scot-free? I have the unwritten law on my side. The unwritten law is a myth, Lieutenant. What's your experience as a defense lawyer? Not very much. doctor examined you and said that he didn't think you'd been raped. Are you ready to tell me the story? What's your legal excuse, Lieutenant? I, I must have been crazy. I'm getting warmer. Would you tell the court what Lieutenant Mannion had to say about the trial? He said, I fooled my lawyer. I fooled that head shrinker. I'm going to fool that bunch of corn cobbers on the jury. You're a liar! Now, of course, it should be noted that that's a little bit more of a modern take on the trailer. Back in the day, as they say, when the uh, film was released in theaters in 1959, well, people's attention spans were a little less divided, so uh, the trailer would have ran four-plus minutes. Yeah, we decided not to, not to play that here on our shoe. But if you ever get a chance, uh, for example, real easy to look up on YouTube, the original trailer for Anatomy of a Murder is worth seeing, uh, but perhaps a little long for audio. Yeah, so, uh, Toppy, um, as we 
set ourselves up for the conversation about uh, tonight's film. Uh, there's a little routine we do here. Do you want to take that? Yeah, we want to set the stage first, folks. So we're going to talk about what was going on in the world in 1959. Take it away, DJ. Okay, so the U.S. history in 1959. Get my place here. I'm waiting for something to move on my screen. Sorry about that, folks. Uh, edit, edit, edit. By the way, is it just me or has the internet been sluggish of late? It's all those, Maybe it's just me. It's all those people doing Zoom. Maybe. <laughs> okay, so 1959, the uh, state of well, Alaska was introduced as the 49th state. Woo-woo. And also, uh, Walt Disney, the Mouse House, well, this is the man in charge. He released his 16th animated film, Sleeping Beauty in Beverly Hills. Now, it was the final fairy tale adaptation released by Mr. Disney himself during his lifetime. It wasn't until many years later in the 80s that uh, uh, Little Mermaid was the next fairy tale. Yeah, we seemed like we got more princesses after that. <laughs> sure did. And now in 1959, NASA was brand new. NASA announced its selection of the Mercury 7, which meant seven military pilots would become the first U.S. astronauts. Also in 59, mm. which explains some of my family's vacation photos, the St. Lawrence Seaway linking the North American Great Lakes and the Atlantic Ocean officially be opens to shipping. Hmm. Also in 59, on uh, Broadway, Gypsy, you know, the one about uh, Rose, the young lady who's a, a dancer. Mm -hmm. uh, it starred Ethel Merman in its premiere in Broadway, and uh, it was her last musical. But it ran for 702 performances, so that tells me it ran for at least two or three years. Mm -hmm. And uh, Hawaii, towards the uh, middle to end of the year in 1959, became the 50th and the final U.S. state so far. And uh, Rod Serling, rounding out 1959, his classic anthology series, The Twilight Zone, premiered for the first time on CBS. Now, just an odd coinky dink here. Now, it is not Gypsy the story of uh, a burlesque, a real-life burlesque uh, performer? Yes. Um, and I'm trying to come up with their name at the top of my head. Uh, ba -ba -ba -ba. Well, isn't the, the young lady Rose? Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's a real name. Anyways, the reason I'm breaking, bringing it up is that in real life, the director of this movie had a big old fling with uh, Gypsy Rose Lee herself. Oh yeah, the, the real, the real life one. Mm. And and they produced a they produced a child. Uh, his name was Eric, and uh, very very wisely. Uh, the uh, the real Gypsy Lee Rose said, uh, 
You ain't going to have nothing to do with the bringing up of this baby. Sayonara. Uh, you have no rights. And he agreed to it. Oh. And uh, he would only meet his son when he became, uh, when he was 60 years old and his son turned 20. And legally, uh, they just decided it was time for him to know. So so he, at the age of 60, he eventually met his son uh, from the real-life Gypsy Rose Lee. Oh. Well, how about that for trivia? How about that? Now, Gypsy, of course, is, is uh, such a popular play that it's been redone many a time. In fact, uh, more than 40 years later, Bette Midler was actually involved in a production Mm-hmm. So, Toppy, uh, there are a few people that joined us in the world in 1959. Could you let us know who some of those famous people were? Okay, you'll you'll know some of these people. Keith Alberman. He's a, a commentary on MSN. David Hyde Pierce, uh, most famous for Frasier, but he's done Broadway stuff too. Matthew Modine. Uh, he was in that there Full Metal Jacket and a little movie called Birdie. Uh, Thomas F. Wilson was born that year. He was Biff in Back to the Future. Nicole Brown Simpson, uh, the former, uh, the late former wife of O.J. Simpson. Uh, Rosanna Arquette, uh, a wonderful, I think just one of just amazing actress. She was in Pulp Fiction, among many other things. Ah, sweet little Mary Osmond was born that year. Isn't that nice? Oh, and then there's Danny Bonaduce. Ah, <laughs> uh, he's uh, he was that little uh, freckled faced kid in Partridge Family, and he grew up to be kind of a Schmo. <laughs> uh, Jason Alexander, famously of Seinfeld. And uh, uh, look at that. Weird Al Yankovic was born that year. And so was Allison Janey. And she's an actress who's appearing in Mom. Yeah, it's an Anna Ferris show on Fox. Uh, Anna Ferris has actually since left the show, but uh, Allison Janey is the. Uh, lead character, and she's one of my favorites because she's been in many films, including The West Wing uh, with Martin Sheen on NBC. Ah, so, um, DJ, 1959, there were uh, lots of movies that year. What was competing with Anatomy of a Murder? Okay, so back then we weren't keeping as close a watch on the books, but the, uh, looking things over from what dried on the pages, the top films in 1959 included number one at the box office that year, um, adjusting for inflation, was at $73 million, and it was Ben-Hur. Mm, talk about an epic. Yeah. Also, at the top of the box office, raking it in at $29 million that year, was The Shaggy Dog, a Disney film. Ah. And number three, and this is a film that I thoroughly enjoy, uh, starring Tony Curtis, uh, maybe wearing women's clothes. It was number three at $25 million, Some Like It Hot. Along with Jack Lemmon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So uh, we, we're not quite sure where on the charts um, tonight's film, Anatomy of a Murder, placed, but given the, uh, the, the rate of inflation for the box office there, we think it was somewhere around the top 10 of that year. I would think so. While it did open to a lot of controversy because of the content, it was received by critics and... Uh, people were really curious about it, and they they did go see it. So I, I'm sure it did quite well. And by the way, it also ended up being nominated for an Academy Award, um, as did the director out of Preminger and a couple of the stars. Uh, but we'll check on that later. So. Um, what do you want to talk about next, DJ? Well, sir, here at the Marionette Theater, we have a history. This was a place that had many celebrated acts, including, as you heard before, we did some burlesque back in the day, and we even had a magician. And uh, the magician of this film, the person that made it happen, the director, was Mr. Otto Preminger. And uh, before we actually talk about him, I thought I would play a little clip that uh, tells you a little bit about this. So here we go. What I enjoy, you know, is the whole uh, character of work in film, so in the theater, which is, in a way, at living, at least the way I do it, you know, this extemporaneous, and uh, meeting challenges, you know, every moment. I mean, I like it just as much if there are difficulties uh, as I like it when everything goes very smoothly. I mean, the whole thing just appeals to me. This part of my life. I don't prepare the shots. So some directors uh-huh. either prepare themselves exactly the way they're going to shoot or they have the art director make sketches for every angle. I, you know, I don't do this. You know, I rehearse with the actors because I come from the theater and the rehearsals are very important for me. And while I rehearse, also while I work with the writer on the script, certain images form in my mind and I execute them on the set. I do not uh, make, uh, that is what I meant by living. I don't prepare myself very meticulously and, and mm-hmm. to each detail, like others, you know, I must have complete freedom, you know, to see it, and then naturally I have an idea what I want mm-hmm. to do, but it is not uh, that methodical, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, I'm not a methodical worker as everything worked out. Mm, no. So, I, if you recognize that voice, and you may have, as Tommy Hash Browns did, uh, Otto Preminger did do some acting, actually quite a bit. Uh, one of one of his roles was Mister Freeze in the '60s Batman TV series. No, so, no, 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 no. Tommy posted a, a, a Mister Freeze in the chat room. Hmm. Now, uh, by listening to that clip there, Toppy, I would guess that uh, the director's first language was not English. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, he was actually born in uh, Poland, uh, but uh, his family had to flee because of um, anti-Semitism as a... was rampant at that time and they 
lived he lived most of his uh, almost all of his early life in Vienna and he uh was uh the son of a prosecutor who was really quite I mean, uh, not just any prosecutor, but he was uh, rose to high prominence uh, as a as a lawyer, and so Otto grew up as a very privileged child, and uh, Dadu really hoped he'd uh, well, almost pretty much insisted, you know, fine. I know you like this acting thing, but you got to go to school and you got to really learn something. So. Otto Preminger did go to school and he did get a degree in law, but his first love was acting and uh, that's what he went into. He wanted to be an actor and, um, but it wasn't, wasn't very long where he realized that his real interest wasn't in acting, but in putting the play together and in the, in, directing and producing and he he liked all those aspects and so he became um he took over a a theater a prominent theater in vienna that was run by the famous max reinhardt max reinhardt was his mentor and uh they really liked each other and preminger learned a lot and that was all that was all by the time he was 24. Um, and by the time of his passing, which was in 1986, uh, he had moved into movies, uh, directing 44 films. Uh, his very first big hit, not his first movie, but his first really big hit was the classic film noir, Laura, in 1944. That put him on the map very successful movie from a very successful novel. Um, and he also did Where the Sidewalk Ends in 1950. Listen to this. Carmen Jones in 1954. Uh, the Man with the Golden Arm in 55. Another musical, Porgy and Bess in 59. The epic Exodus in 1960. The controversial advice and consent in '62, and a little really wonderful movie called Bunny Lake is Missing. It was kind of a mystery thriller. You will notice he is not a niche uh, player. He liked what he liked. It didn't matter if it was a film noir or a mystery or a thriller or a musical. He did it. Uh, he did not confine himself in any way. So that's uh, so many other movies besides those that we've just listed. And of course, we're talking about what probably remains to this day his most beloved, famous, most well-known film is Anatomy of a Murder from '58. Hmm. Or 59. It's 59. 59. Oh, right. So uh, we're going to get into the story, the meat and potatoes of tonight's film. And uh, before we actually discuss some of our favorite scenes and uh, what we thought of the story, I'm going to play a little clip for you here. And this is of Jimmy Stewart's character, the lawyer, talking to his client, the lieutenant. Yeah, let's get I can. 
defend murder. Number one, it wasn't murder. It was suicide or accidental. Number two, you didn't do it. Number three, you were legally justified, like the protection of your home or self-defense. Number four, the killing was excusable. Where do I fit into this rosy picture? I'll tell you where you don't fit. You don't fit in any of the first three. But why? Why wouldn't I be legally justified in killing the man who raped my wife? Time element. Now, if you'd caught him in the act, the shooting might have been justified, but you didn't catch him in the act. And you had time to bring in the police, and you didn't do that either. You're guilty of murder, premeditated and with vengeance. That's first-degree murder in any court of law. Are you telling me to plead guilty? When I advise you to cop out, you'll know. Cop out? Well, that's plead guilty and ask for mercy. Well, if you're not telling me to cop out, what are you telling me to do? I'm not telling you to do anything. I just want you to understand the letter of the law. Hey, so as this story unfolds in the very beginning here, we have um, the main character there, Paul Beegler, and uh, that's Jimmy Stewart's character. And uh, he is actually a, a district attorney. Now, um, it, it basically is set up fairly early in the film there. He ran for re-election and uh, didn't win that, so he's trying to figure out how to keep the, the lights on in the office there. And, uh, yeah, it's a brilliant introduction because Preminger gets it all in, in just a few minutes, you get a complete sense of who Jimmy Stewart is. He'd rather be fishing, frankly, than anything. Uh, he, uh, he's an outdoorsman. Uh, he's got, I mean, when you take a look at his office, I mean, it, it ain't pretty. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, who knows the last time anyone cleaned it. And uh, he's got this hanger on, uh, his kind of assistant, who is basically um, a failed lawyer himself who succumbed to alcoholism. And, uh, you know, who knows why Jimmy Stewart is keeping him on there, but he does. And then there's their faithful a secretary, receptionist, all-around gal Friday. And uh, who's she played by? Oh, my who, goodness. Who is this, DJ? One of my father's favorite actresses, uh, voice actress uh, turned film star Eve Arden, the the sharp wit of this era of film. Yeah, she, she went on to have a lot of success in TV. And this is a really nice role for, in fact, this whole dichotomy between uh, Stewart and his drunken assistant and their faithful secretary is, is what so many television series tried to copy in the succeeding years. I mean, there's so all those courtroom dramas and uh, TV detectives took this formula and went to town with it. Everybody from, I just, I can't think of the, there's so many of them, everybody from Matlock to uh, earlier. uh, uh, I can't even think of how many, but they, they really, this, this movie and the, that kind of relationship just spawned a generation of uh, TV that, that really saw something successful and said, Hey, you know, we, we can make a series out of that. And, and they did. 
Yeah, so um, we've got the attorney and his business partner there in the office trying to figure out how to make ends meet. And, of course, now that he hasn't gotten his re-election that he was hoping for, he's got to take on some cases. So, of course, this first is the uh, defense of the army lieutenant who has, uh, well, murdered someone on behalf of his wife. Right. It turns out uh, that his wife was sexually assaulted. Uh, They do actually get around to using the word rape in the movie. That was one of the things that uh, Preminger wanted, and a lot of people didn't. Um, it want, they wanted to censor that word, but he got it in. And, um, and when her uh, military husband finds out about it, he walks over to the saloon where this guy worked and shot him, shoots him five times. Yeah, so uh, in a little bit here, I'll have a clip here that gives you uh, an idea of the kind of lady that uh, Laura is the wife, but uh, we are actually about halfway through the show, so I'm going to go ahead and step out here to the snack bar where our senior showgirl has your favorite treats waiting for you. I'd like a whiskey sour, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, for your enjoyment, we're going to play a feature here that uh, it may have aired in the theater. It's kind of one of those news reels. This is the premiere of Anatomy of a Murder in 1959. The Michigan background of the motion picture version of last year's bestseller, Anatomy of a Murder, demands Detroit as the scene for its gala world premiere. Bringing to the auto capital some of the Hollywood principles responsible for Otto Preminger's dramatic adaptation. Among them, Lee Remick, the female star of Anatomy of a Murder. Lawyer Joseph N. Welch, actor Arthur O'Connell, and producer-director Preminger, with Mrs. Welch accompanying the barrister-turned-actor. Inspiring a whirlicane of socials such as this press club luncheon where Miss Remick hears Mr. Preminger thank the citizens of the state for their cooperation during the filming of the picture on locations in Upper Michigan. Also, this Rotary Club luncheon honoring Mr. Welsh, who before making his debut as the judge in Anatomy of a Murder, was a nationally famous Bay State lawyer. Then there was this Freedom Festival luncheon at which Michigan Supreme Court Justice John Volker, the author of Anatomy of a Murder, Broadway actor George Scott, a local boy, and Lee Remick received keys to the city from Mrs. Louis Morani, as Mr. Preminger again expresses his gratitude. A civic parade, too, marks the excitement and Governor G. Menon Williams and his wife escort producer-director Preminger through the acclaim of Detroit's multitudes. Girl of Highland Bagpipers salutes the anatomy of a murder premiere at the United Artists Theater, which is besieged by crowds long before the scheduled opening, to which Mr. Preminger brings Governor and Mrs. Williams and the film's fashion coordinator, Hope Bryce. Lee Remick is escorted to the gala by Louis C. Morani, mayor of the auto capital. While author Volker, whose pen name is Robert Traver, is attended by a Freedom Festival queen. 
as is Arthur O'Connell, who supports James Stewart, the male star of the film. Detroit's own George Scott brings his family. Lawyer Thespian Welsh and his wife also attend the premiere, which will benefit the Detroit chapter of the American Association for the United Nations, while producer-director Preminger receives the congratulations of Walter Ruther. A night of nights for a worthy cause and Otto Preminger's most worthy, Anatomy of a Murder. Last year's number one bestseller, this year's, we hope, number one motion picture. So continuing the conversation on the story here, Toppy, um, just thought I would... Yeah, bef- mm-hmm. before, we, before we do, I, it's worth mentioning uh, that, that Preminger started out at 20th Century Fox in the studio system, but by this time, he had busted out of the studio system, and he was an independent director and producer, and he independently did his films from then on, including this one, Anatomy of uh, uh, Murder. And being free of of the studio system enabled him to do subjects like a movie about someone who got raped and uh, being, uh, well, for that time, very explicit. So, yes, back to the story. Oh, well, then uh, Mr. Otto there is ahead of his time because it's still another decade or more before that, you know, traditional studio system is sort of broken up and quote-unquote old Hollywood has has, uh, gone aside. Yeah. Mm. Yep. And so, so, (laughs) Stuart, Jim, his character accepts the case and, and it turns out that his opponent in the courtroom is not going to be the current prosecutor, uh, um, who he's friends with, but someone from out of town, and he's a real big shot. And uh, he's played by George C. Scott, and uh, he just comes in, and you know, small town lawyer Jimmy Stewart is feeling unsettled <laughs> because this is a big threat, um, and. They really need to win this case because they are broke. Yeah, and uh, some might note that George C. Scott would later on go to pl- uh, to play uh, General Patton. So, um, right. so, uh, so it's, it becomes quite a procedural. That's what we like to call these things today. Uh, the there's uh, on TV today. There's like what N N S C I C I S. What that? There's like five million of them, and they've all been on TV for twenty thousand years. And God, I guess they're popular uh, because so many people watch them. We call them procedurals, and they follow the procedure of a trial or the procedure of. Uh, collecting evidence. And really, this is a procedural about what happens in the courtroom. It really is about the trial. And there's a lot of things. Well, first of all, Preminger's father was a lawyer. And I have to think that that's, and and he studied law. So I have to think that was a major region reason he was interested in this material. And he really got into it. I mean, he wanted to really show how lawyers 
work. And not just, you know, it, it got to the underbelly. Like you, you get to see how they strategize, strategize and do things that are just this side of being kosher. And they, it's the manipulation is all there on screen and you get to see it. So it makes it very real. It's not, uh, it's, it, it's not a uh, little sunny piece of movie. It's, it's pretty real. One of the things that uh, interested me in the storyline of this is that, of course, it follows the, um, you know, the story of the, the man who's in jail, the husband, the lieutenant, and he's seen action in war. So they're following that in the story and explaining that this man has lived through a trauma and of course, that I don't think was uh, you know a very common theme in films from that time. I mean, we we do see more of that as we move towards more like um, the time frame of Vietnam and that. But in this time frame, most of the stories that you hear about people who've seen action in war were all about celebrating that war and the victory, not what the people who had gone through it had been through. So they, they have it where um, the Lieutenant in this, who's in jail for the murder actually sees a therapist. And so they introduce that into the story, that idea that this man may have committed a murder, but he may not have been in his right mind when it happened because, you know, he, he's had he's been forced into a situation, aka military service, where he's had to take someone's life. Right. And interestingly, in the trial portion of the movie, George C. Scott really lays into that, saying, Well, you were in your right mind when you were killing people in the service of your country and you had guns and you experienced violence and uh, you were in your right mind then. And he says, uh, there are other instances of violence that were non war related. And he says, well, you were in your right mind when, when, you know, you socked that guy or punched the other guy for offending your wife. Right. You weren't crazy then. No, no, I wasn't. I wasn't. And so, uh, George C. Scott really tries to plug holes in any notion that uh, we should feel sympathy for him because of the action he saw in Korea. Hmm. Now, uh, I'm going to give you listeners a taste of the character of the wife, Laura, the victim of this crime. and then, Yeah, and then we got to talk about her. Yes, and uh, we'll talk about her and the cast. The... Uh... The undergarments that Barney Quill tore off. Who has them now, the police? You mean my panties? All right, your panties. I haven't seen them since. I gave the torn skirt and sweater to the police, and then I went with them up that lane into the woods to look for the panties, but we couldn't find anything but my glasses. Your glasses? You mean you were wearing glasses through all that? No, I had them in a case in my hand. I wear them for reading, playing pinball, things like that. I must have tried to get out of the car and dropped them. Uh-huh. You uh, might be interested to know that your lie detector test turned out in your favor. Of course it did. I could have told you it would. 
something you weren't worried about. No. Why should I be? Well, would you like to have something to worry about? <laughs> Silly. Like your husband watching us from his cell window? Whoopsie. <laughs> yes. You know, DJ, I gotta ask you, when you were watching this mm -hmm. and they introduced Laura and we it's shown right away that she was recently the victim of some sort of beating and it's established that it's the beating she got at the hands of her assaulter, uh, assaultee, assaulter. Anyway. Uh, and, uh, she was really badly beaten up and she's wearing sunglasses to disguise some of the bruises around her eyes. But she's a wildcat, really. What did you did you trust her uh, as as the story went on, or were you suspicious? How did you feel about her? Well, firstly, I think that uh, the first time we see her in the film, she has uh, basically invited herself into the attorney's office, and she's sprawled out on the couch waiting for him. She's listened to all of his records. So she's, yeah. you know, she's going through his things. So this isn't somebody who, um, you know, cares about what others think, apparently. And of course, when he gets in the door, uh, he offers her a drink and she's got her cute little dog with her, probably her faithful companion while her husband was away at the war. And, uh, you know, then in this cute moment, she asked for him to pour a little bit of the beer into the ashtray. Hopefully it's clean for the dog. And it's so cute because it takes a nap. So all of those things, it also, it made me wonder when this film was supposed to have taken place. Of course, it was modern day for the time, but the way that Laura was dressed and I'm not judging anyone. This is just an observation is that what she had on seemed more like what a person would wear in the sixties, the, the age of free love where her clothes might've been a little bit more comfortable. This film was supposed to have taken place in the fifties. Mind you, it was 59, but as we get into the story, she's asked quite plainly by the attorney, you know, where's your corset? Yeah, so Tommy Hashbrown's just posted a picture of Laura in this very scene you're talking about, and she's got a, like, I don't know, a, a pant, pants, she's wearing pants, and a, uh, a blouse that's rather form-fitting, and there's one point where she reaches over the arm of that couch, and, and uh, let's just say shows off her fanny. Uh-huh. Jimmy Stewart. So she is a bit of a dirty bird. I mean, she like she in fact she admits that she's not shy about it at all. She says, My whole life people, uh, men have made plays for me. That's just how it is. And uh and you know, that's how I live. Uh, uh, and she she makes no bones about uh how she's uh, a, a, a flirtatious woman 
Yeah, this is very much a story that could be told today. I mean, I, I, I don't want to encourage remakes. I don't always think a remake is a bad thing. You, you could have a take on this story if it were to be redone. But that's just to, a testimony to how good this story and this film is because, uh, you know, it, it's something you could watch now and you could imagine what was going on in the minds of those people when these things happen and how did she have to live when her husband was at war? What are the expectations of a married woman? Right. And, and, and what she's done and it's evoked very strongly by just one expression Lee Remick has as Jimmy Stewart leaves her trailer in one scene because she's just invited him into her trailer and he declines and she's coming on to him and he declines uh, and, and walks away. And there the last scene in that moment is just the loneliness on her face uh, so she is a very lonely, lonely woman, and we're not exactly sure why. Maybe it's because her husband is away all the time, or maybe we don't know. Is there, Maybe she's afraid of her husband. We're just not sure. But they show us a lot of indications that, yes, you know, those bruises may actually have been given by her husband, not the person who is accused to have assaulted her. So that's one of the things we're led to believe is possible. And we're just never sure. And that that's part of the, uh, you know, the greatness of the portrayals of these characters, because there's so many layers and you watch the scenes and you wonder, did she really get roughed up by a stranger or does her husband abuse her? And, you know, uh, did the person who get murdered have it coming, so to speak? We just don't know until you get a good part of the way through the film. And I actually still had questions when uh, it came to the ending. And uh, we, we may actually discuss the, the final scenes here with a spoiler alert for, you know, a 50-plus-year-old film. But anyways, Copy, um, we've got a few people that made this film. Who was in it? Who was the star? Well, without a doubt, Jimmy, J- J- Jimmy Stewart. Uh, he played the lawyer, Paul Bagler. Well, we know a lot about him. He was uh, born in Pennsylvania. His parents owned a hardware store. Uh, he was a very, had a modest upbringing, went into the army uh, where he uh, distinguished himself, um, became interested in acting, got into Hollywood with his fellow actor, Henry Fonda. Um, and made a lot of law, a lot of movies early on. Um, and during the great depression, that's when he started. Um, and he'd already been in more than two dozen films, if not more, I swear more than that by the time he did, but he, by the time he was, uh, the mature actor he became in, by 1959, when he did anatomy of a murder, he was, more famous than famous. I mean, he was one of he was one of the actors that people 
loved in Hollywood. And the 50s was actually a really grand decade for him, doing movies like Rear Window, Anatomy of a Murder, and that great Western with John Wayne. Ooh, I can't remember the name of it. Tommy Hashbrown's Help Me. Uh, what the the, the oh, is it Right of Way? No, it's it's way better. Oh gosh. Anyways, maybe someone will know. It's the because it, uh, I I want to say that Jimmy Stewart did a couple of movies with John Wayne, possibly. Oh yeah, I I do believe uh, more than one. Absolutely, but he. Uh, just got better and better as he got older. And I would say the fifties was a really great decade for him. Um, so uh, the, uh, I mean, his, his movies are, are legend. Um, and he went on working uh, just barely up into the seventies. I think his last movie was airport 76. Oh. Um, so, you know, who knows? I, but that was like, you know, that was not a uh, slumming movie because that was a time when really big movie stars wanted to be in those. They were courted and, and they wanted to be in those uh, epic disaster movies that were so popular. <laughs> At any rate. Well, before I talk yeah. about our leading lady, I, I want to give a credit to Mr. Jimmy Stewart because his career did not actually totally end in the 70s. There was a few more small films, including one that was made for, yes, hold on to your hats, folks, HBO. Uh, hmm. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart did a movie for HBO in a time when um, actors in their twilight were resurfacing, of course, certainly to pay the bills, but now you have original films for cable television, and this was introduced, of course, by the master of the movies on your TV, HBO. Um, this was a film called Right of Way that came out in the early 80s, and it starred Betty Davis. Now, I won't say it was a bad film. I remember watching it as a kid, and I remember Jimmy Stewart being in it. So uh, his performance, I'm sure, was quite fine. Now, this was one of Betty Davis's last performances. And um, one of the criticisms I've heard of Right of Way was that that poor Jimmy Stewart, he had to work with Betty Davis. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, but anyways, our leading lady, Lee Remick, who played Mrs. Mannion, Laura to her friends, or, you know, the guys at the bar. Uh, she was wow. Massachusetts-born, and her parents owned a department store, Swanky Swanky. Anatomy of a Murder was only her third film on the silver screen. Now, she began her career in television, and she starred in seven TV shows just prior to being on Anatomy of a Murder. Now, Remick would star in nine films in the next five years. Now, yeah, she uh, she famously got into trouble in the McCarthy um, communist witch hunt, and she was blacklisted uh, for a while. That really, really slowed down her career in a, in a bad way. The first time I remember seeing her was in The Omen. Uh Oh, oh, The Omen 2, I believe. Or was it 1? 
Anyways, one of the first two Omen movies is the first time I remember seeing her. Mm-hmm. Yes, she's most well-known for her role in uh, Omen. I, I am forgetting which of the two it was. But uh, then we have uh, the gentleman who played um, Jimmy Stewart's business partner, the, the man who was uh, drowning his sorrows over his flask toppy. Who was that? Yeah. That was Arthur O'Connell. You couldn't help but love him in this movie. And he began acting in the 40s, uh, but uh, in, in uncredited roles, uh, just just so many. Uh, he just became one of those character actors that was in everything. And you you may never have known his name, but every time you saw him, you say, oh, it's that guy. It's that guy. And uh, so prior to Anatomy of a Murder... He was in uh, the the father. Uh, oh, he was in Gidget. That's the one in, uh, and he played uh, the father of Gidget. And the film he did right after it was Hound Dog with Fabian and Claude Akins. Uh, this movie did a lot to rekindle his career, and over the next uh, five years, he was in another dozen movies. And by the time he passed in 1975, he had way over 140 acting credits. He was a busy man, and uh, he had a nice, nice part in Anatomy of a Murder. Hmm. Now, we've got a few other members of the cast, but we're getting close to the end here. So I'll just give some quick honorable mentions. We have Mr. Ben Gazzara, who played... Lieutenant Frederick Mannion, Mr. Mannion, who's doing time in jail for ending the life of his wife's assailant. Uh, yeah, he- uh, and you just never trust him. You just figure somehow in this role as Lieutenant Frederick Mannion, you just, I, you just, something's wrong there. And um, so he was very, he did, he is another character actor that was in a million things. Um, some big, uh, but a lot, a lot more were, were just smaller roles. And the other guy you, you can't miss is George C. Scott, who plays the big time, big city lawyer who comes in and opposes Jimmy Stewart's small town lawyer role. And he just comes in and takes charge like nobody else but George C. Scott can take charge. And by the way, that's kind of the way he delivers all of his lines in his movies. He kind of barks. Uh, but anyways, uh, he was in <laughs> The Hustler. He was in Dr. Strangelove. He was in Patton uh, and, and won the Academy Award, which he refused uh, he did not like the Academy Awards, even though he won one. And he said, "Nah, not playing." <laughs> and uh, he uh, went on to do to have a long career uh, doing lots of things. I remember, oh, the Changeling. That was one of that was a spooky movie that was really good. He was in oh that the movie with the dolphin. Uh, the day of the dolphin. Oh, he was in so many movies. So, at uh, last, let's we got DJ. We got to talk about this guy who played the judge in the movie. Oh, because yeah. I didn't know this until after I started researching. 
And this surprised the hell out of me. Now, do you want me to introduce the folks to what he used to say? Uh, oh, well, well, let me set it up okay. by explaining first. So the judge in this movie is so you just love him. And he's in a he's a big part of this movie. It's not a small part. He's in a he's in all of the scenes that take place in uh, the courtroom. And I mean, he just he just, uh, you know, he's like the voice of reason. And you just go like, wow, you know, I I really like this guy. And he's so good in it. I mean, it's just it's a great role. I thought he was a character actor. I didn't know who he was. But I just figured, well, this is another character actor who's been in a million movies. No, he wasn't. <laughs> it's actually a real life lawyer. Uh, and I don't know how Preminger got him into this, but what a coup and what a great job he did because uh, he's so good in it. He's a natural and well, he played a judge and he was a judge and what he's most famous for uh, other than maybe this movie is that in the real life McCarthy hearings that were aired on TV, the ones about they, communism, about where the witch hunts, where they were wanted to know who was a communist, who was a communist, who was red, um, a terrible, just a terrible time in our uh, nation's history. And it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And this real guy, his name is Joseph N. Welch. That's the name of the guy that played the judge who's a real judge, real lawyer, he was in the McCarthy hearings. And the clip we're going to play is like maybe the most, the turning point in the trial, the, the hearings, where people uh, were willing to, like they wanted to respect and support McCarthy and then this is the turning point where we begin to know like, okay, maybe McCarthy is way over the top. And here is Joseph N. Welch, the guy that played the lawyer in the movie. And he's dressing down Joseph McCarthy in these famous words that will go down in history. Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. Look, look, you've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? Have you left no sense of decency? <laughs> uh, that's just a real short clip, but that surprised the hell out of me, TJ. Yeah, he spoke his mind, that's for sure, and... Um... You know, for those who haven't seen the film, I highly encourage you to catch a copy of it. Um, there is a great scene in this where the judge uh, decides upon himself that, uh, you know, one of the uh, items of discussion in this case are going to be a certain garment of women's underwear. Now, 
he understood that there might be fits of laughter because, of course, the word is panties. And so he addresses the gallery. The That's what you call the folks sitting in the courtroom because it's the original free form of entertainment, folks. Before there was cable TV in small towns, people ah. would pack themselves into the courtroom and bring a lunch. So uh, he told them, he says, okay, I want you to get the giggles out now because this word's going to be used several times over this case. (laughs) It's a great moment in the movie and it's a great, you know, he just shines in in that moment. And I am sorry, I have to share with our listeners, when I watched this film, my husband was at work. Yes, he's back to work. Yay! And uh, he came home and I had to say, I, I've had an experience. I've had to hear Jimmy Stewart say the word panties. <laughs> right, right. And, and of course, it, it sounds silly now, but it was very controversial at the time. They, they, uh, the, 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 the people in, you know, power uh, really wanted to censor that word. And, uh, well, Preminger won. And so we got to hear the word panties in a movie. <laughs> and we even got to we even got to hear Jimmy Stewart say panties too. So like <laughs> uh, there are I you know somebody out on the internet probably has remixed that clip of Jimmy Stewart saying that word like they do those autotune songs with the yes. evening news. I, I can only imagine. So um, before we finish up here, because we're going to tell you something else that you might enjoy if you enjoyed uh, court dramas like Anatomy. Oh, can, I just, sure. can I just say one last thing uh-huh. that's notable about the movie? Yeah. Is that the sound the soundtrack, the score, uh, the movie was scored by a jazz uh, legend, Duke Ellington. And uh, it won three Grammy Awards. Um, It was uh, for best performance by a dance band, best musical composition, first recorded and released in 59 and best soundtrack album. It was very celebrated. It's very distinctive. It helps the movie being grounded in reality. It helps because Jimmy Stewart's character loves jazz and it helps make the movie the distinctive movie that it is. This, this great score by Duke Ellington. He also had a cameo in the film. He played the piano playing man at the nightclub. That's right. Uh, Jimmy Stewart is sitting at the piano with Duke Ellington in the movie and kind of a honky tonk dive bar. Uh, and the two of them are sitting there playing, playing uh, music. And Oh, I, I had to laugh because Jimmy Stewart says to Duke Ellington, you know, oh, I, I, I got to go. You know, he says, oh, are you cutting out? He says, yeah, I got to talk to somebody. And then a minute later, he leaves with that somebody who is Laura, this voluptuous woman. And Duke Ellington looks at them walking out the door and he's like, oh, yeah, he's, you know, he's got her. You know, he's walking out with this <laughs> dang sexy. Anyway, it's, it's cute. Uh, so there are a few things that you might enjoy if you like things like Anatomy of a Murder. I'll go ahead and uh, mention something that you might enjoy. So this is our snack tray. 
And, uh, you know, Gertie is uh, cleaning down the bar and uh, turning off the soda fountains for the night. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Make sure those nozzles get washed and bleached this time, lady. I don't need no report from the health department. Yeah, yeah. Well. (laughs) So, another film that you might enjoy, if you liked Anatomy of a Murder... This is a film starring Mr. Jimmy Stewart, and uh, it was made uh, a few years before this. Uh, I believe it was a Hitchcock film, Vertigo. Yes. And uh, I haven't yes. seen it, but I've heard lots about it. I think that there was a, uh, a spoof done years and years later uh, with Mel Brooks called High Anxiety. Yeah, it's it spoofed Vertigo and and. And many of his, uh, many of uh, uh, Hitchcock's other movies, but it was primarily a spoof of Vertigo. Uh, Vertigo uh, uh, is Hitchcock's probably most twisted movie ever. <laughs> also, I'll probably like it. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> and uh, in terms of a court drama, if you like Anatomy of Murder, something that you might enjoy. Because, uh, you know, I grew up in the 80s. Uh, this is a film from 96, and I'm actually just recently learning that it was a remake of a film in the 50s. Oh. Uh, it was called uh, The Rainmaker. Now, I, I, uh, the, there is a movie in the 50s called The Rainmaker, but it has nothing to do with this. Oh, well, okay. Anyways, so The Rainmaker from 1996 starred Matt Damon and Danny DeVito. Now, this was a film that was directed by Mr. Francis Ford Coppola. And um, it's another court drama story about um, the evils of corporate insurance. Great selection. Really good movie. I I really loved it. Uh, Directed by Francis Ford Coppola, The Rainmaker. So that's a great choice. Um, I chose a courtroom drama uh, that came out quite some time before, I think 1980 might have been the year, but it's called The Verdict, and it starred Paul Newman, who who portrayed Frank Galvin, an alcoholic Boston lawyer, who tries to redeem his personal and professional reputation by winning a difficult medical malpractice case. And he goes up against the great James Mason. And uh, I believe Paul Newman got the Academy Award for that one. Uh, So that's my recommendation. Another courtroom drama that certainly we can say... uh, Anatomy of a Murder set the uh, scale for modern courtroom drama. There were courtroom dramas before Anatomy of a Murder, but this, but uh, Anatomy of a Murder just brought it to today in '59. But it was, yeah, it works all these years later. Okay, so uh, we have wandered out here to the lobby so we could do our Beverly Hillbillies style. Goodbye to everyone. But before we do, we want to give you a tease of what's to come. So uh, we're going to be a little bit back on track only for one show here because, well, February is an interesting month. 
So we're going to be back on track in terms of are the nights we do this, right? Right. It'll be the first Friday of the month next month off just for the first show. And then we have a special show because we are participating in our favorite sci-fi mid-Atlantic extravaganza virtually with some details to follow here. So, Toppy, um, if you could be so kind, grab that bag of coins the magician left us so we can figure out what's coming up next. All right. Let me get it out. All right. Here's one for you. And, uh, yeah. Okay. All righty. So, uh, in the spirit of Baltimore, as, uh, <laughs> as, uh. as we are missing our mid-Atlantic friends here due to the pandemic, uh, our annual nerd reunion has gone virtual this year. Uh, that's the far point, uh, the far point sci-fi convention. Yes. Which is in its, I think 28th year this year, but, uh, we are going to be doing a show for them. The, uh, Saturday of February 20th with details to follow. We're going to be watching an eighties film. It's a, a Western actually that stars a Baltimore legend, uh, starred in a couple of Mr. John Waters' films, uh, Divine. But also notable is that one-time Hollywood hunk, Tab Hunter, whose career tanked long before Lust of the Dust after <laughs> Tabloids exposed him as a gay man. But Tab Hunter came back uh, to port to uh, to be in this uh, comic uh, satire of westerns, Lust in the Dust, but also starring Batman's Caesar Romero. You got you got to love it. <laughs> so if you like uh, other things that Divine has been in, uh, like uh, Hairspray, uh, and uh, oh. I can't remember all of them. You'll want to tune in the next time here. It'll be on Friday, February, because there is an R in there, February 5th. And we're going to be discussing the 1980s film, Westerns, uh, hijinks, lost in the dust. And um, if for no other reason than to find out what happens when... Uh, Divine's gentlemen callers go south of the board, or they may regret it. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Just let's thank our uh, the people that took the time to stop by tonight. Uh, your hubby, Billy, and Logan, and uh, most especially RT Cruiser, all the way from Australia. Thanks for being here. And, of course, our pal who comes by every week. Tommy Hash Browns, thank you all. Oh. <laughs> and uh, and you're waiting for me to say uh, good night, Gracie. Thank you for listening to Matinee Minutia. Our show streams live the first and third Friday of each month. Go to univazpods.net, click the tower for audio, enter Discord. For chat. You can find the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Tweet us on Twitter at Matinee Minutia. Join our Facebook group. Visit our webpage at matineeminutia.com. 
have an idea for a future show or just want to message us, email us at matineemanusha at gmail.com. Oliver. This has been an Alibug production. I have a voice. I have a voice. You have a voice. You have a voice. We have a voice. We have a voice. Unique voices in podcasting. Univospods.net.